Hope you have a Bible. We're in John chapter 6 once again. Uh, we read um, throughout the chapter last week. We're going to spend one more week in John 6 um, looking at it from a different angle, different perspective. This is one of the really landmark texts, landmark chapters in the book of John, really the whole New Testament. Um, as Jesus um, says some pretty remarkable and memorable things in this uh, chapter. And we talked last week um, about the miracle, the, the fourth sign that Jesus, can, uh, d- that Jesus does at this um, uh, feeding of the 5,000 and what that means and how that, actually the fifth sign that he makes, um, really, really wows and, 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 and shocks everyone uh, at this crowd um, as they're gathered together on the hillsides. Of course, things go in a direction that they did not expect and that maybe Jesus knew what was going to happen, but I don't know if everybody there that day knew that things would turn the way that they did. But i got a question to ask you right off the top before we get started, um, and I think it'll start to make sense why I'm asking this question when we get into our text, and if you've read the text um, and know what happens, you, you probably can get the drift of the question. But have you, ever been, have you ever been in a situation where you knew that doing the right thing might cost you? Have you ever been in a situation where you knew what you had to do, and it's not that you didn't want to do it, but that doing it somehow, it, 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 it dawned on you and it began to sink in that by doing the right thing, that there will be some consequences that you didn't anticipate originally and that you never would have dreamed would actually be the outcome, but are definitely going to be the way things are going to go. Now, maybe there's a situation where you've worked long and hard and you've poured yourself into something that you believed in and were passionate about, and then things just turned Things go in a direction that you did not anticipate, and even if you did suspect it, you just convinced yourself not to worry over it, and you told yourself it will work itself out, but it just didn't. And then you arrive at this impasse, you arrive at this intersection, and it dawns on you that you've got to take a stand, you've got to make a decision, and what makes things even more difficult is that the reason you had even started down that particular path Maybe the reason why you forged that relationship, the reason why you took that risk, the reason why you devoted yourself to a certain task becomes the very same reason you have to take a stand. Right? The th- very thing that led you down that road is the very thing that makes you take a different direction. The very thing that sent you down that path is the very thing that takes you off of that path. And you never really understand why would God do that or why would something you love so much create so, so much conflict in the end. And, and you did everything right. You did everything according to what your ability allowed you to do and the opportunities that you were afforded. You dotted your I's, you crossed your T's, you covered your base, you prayed, you prepared, you worked hard, but it wasn't enough. And more importantly, it just wasn't God's will. But again, what what is so frustrating is that the inspiration behind it becomes the impasse. The catalyst causes the conflict. The very reason why you went that way is the very thing that makes you go another way. And i got to ask you, what do you do? What do you do and what should you do and what you want to do and what you should do might be different. But either way, it's not an easy road to walk. And that's exactly where we find Jesus in this chapter. And we don't often talk about Jesus the man. Um, and, and I think that's just because it's so hard to reconcile and wrestle with the fact that Jesus was both God and man. And it's easy to stand back and just talk about how Jesus was God, and he was perfect, and he never had any problems or bad days, or never had any uh, you know, bumps in the road. And, and of course, from John's perspective, John's telling us a story where we are getting a close-up view of Jesus, the Son of God, 
Jesus the Messiah, Jesus God in a body. But along the way, we've seen Jesus the man. We've seen Jesus the one who got tired and sat down by the well. We've seen Jesus the one who, with empathy, understood the difficulties that others were going through, that he himself knew as a person. And now we see Jesus. We get a rare glimpse of Jesus the man. He was not a sinner, of course, but he was a true flesh and blood human being. And I bring this up because in our text tonight, we're going to see Jesus face challenging circumstances just like we have faced and will face. And the question I pose to begin our time is one that Jesus himself has to wrestle with in our text and in this setting. And while Jesus may have never wavered in obedience, and while there's no, uh, it would be preposterous to even su- suggest that Jesus ever had a difficult time saying yes to God or ever had a difficult time being obedient, he of course never wavered in obedience. It, it doesn't mean that he didn't deal with the pressure and frustrations. He of course did. And the anxieties and the emotions that come along with just being a person in a fallen world. But also, lest it be underscored, Jesus up until midway through John 6, I don't think we can really fathom this, Jesus had amassed an immense and a major following. His fame and his popularity was soaring. Nobody had ever known the kind of fame and recognition that Jesus had known in this day and time, in the world, in the place that he was living. Remember, people left following John the Baptist to follow Jesus, right? John the Baptist became kind of this, 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 this you know, punchline of a joke because his movement died and Jesus was booming, right? The temple was suffering and struggling to pay its bills because Jesus had taken so much of the following away. John the Baptist movement was put on the bench. The temple was holding on and wondering, what are we going to do because we're losing our people Jesus' movement was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And at this time, in this chapter, there are probably between fifteen and 20,000 people that are wondering, following Jesus wherever he goes, wherever he is at, they are there as well. John tells us there are 5,000 men because he wants to make a big deal about this. There are 5,000 men, and in a Roman legion, there were 5,000 men. John says, hey, Jesus' movement had 5,000 men in it, not counting the women and the children, would have put it over fifteen or 20,000. There were more people in the movement of Jesus than an average Roman legion had. So if Jesus said, hey guys, let's take over, let's take on Jerusalem, let's take on Rome, he had enough people that would have given him the manpower to start a war if he wanted to. Jesus was so, so very popular, and you and I know that Jesus was so, so very powerful. Turning water to wine was just the icing on the cake. He could raise the dead, right? He could change people's fates. He could do what nobody else had ever done. But as we studied last week, they that followed Jesus didn't necessarily follow him for all the right reasons. But still, I mean, they were following him, and they were ready to go to war for him and jumping at the chance to make him their king. I mean, even if it wasn't part of the plan, don't you think it would be tough to just outright dismiss that off the table? I mean, of course Jesus had a plan, and he wasn't going to go along with something that wasn't God's will, but could you imagine what it was like for Jesus to have fifteen to 20,000 people ready to do anything for you? And to come up at a situation where you were going to have to say some things that was going to make that 5,000 men go down to 12? Can you imagine how difficult that was? For Jesus to say the things that he had to say that would cost him his immense 
popularity. And of course, we know how the story ends. He is more popular than anybody has ever been and will ever be. And in the name of Jesus, every knee and tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But in the moment, right? In the moment. I don't think it's, it, it, it's wrong to, to make a very big emphasis that in the moment, I think it must have been difficult. I'm, I think the emotions and the temptations were just as difficult for Jesus as they would be for us in this scenario. Let's not forget two very important verses that maybe we, we haven't talked about or maybe you haven't studied in a while. Hebrews 2 and 4. Hebrews 2 verse 18 says that he, Jesus himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are tempted. So the message there is that Jesus was tempted in every way that we've been tempted. And you may have never had 10,000, 15,000 people following you, but somebody has. Athletes and leaders and politicians, right, and people who are important figures, they know what it's like to have people that are at the, you know, that are at the, you know, uh, beck and call that would do anything they want to for them, right? Jesus was tempted like anybody in his position would have been tempted. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he didn't sin. But it doesn't mean that he wasn't face to face with the opportunity to sin and the opportunity to do what anybody in his position would want to do, given the opportunity. So we can learn from this experience of Jesus where the movement that he had built comes crumbling down in his hands because of something he had to say. Where the audience, where the following that he had earned and deserved is on the verge of making an about face and walking away from him and plotting to kill him. All because Jesus was unwavering in his mission. And and it's so ironic, or maybe it's not, a coincidence that the same drive that caused him to stand against religion to the applause of the masses caused him to stand against the many to the applause of the few, and I mean the very few. So the setup is that Jesus sees the many that are following him that, are, that they're just there for food. They're literally just there for the show. They're literally there looking at their watch saying, it's been 15 minutes and there hasn't been a miracle. It's been 20 minutes and we haven't got something for free. I mean, Jesus, you fed us yesterday and we would really like to have another meal. And Jesus calls them out. He sees their hearts aren't really focused on him, but rather they're seeking their own wills and they're using him. They were constantly trying to navigate the conversation to get what they could to extort and extract some kind of gain from God. And if you read John 6, Jesus sets up a scenario that distinguishes the consumers from the followers. And boy, did he distinguish the consumers from the followers. Again, there were 5,000 men plus thousands of women and children, and we go from thousands to a dozen, right? They saw him as a cosmic vending machine. And Jesus says, that's not who I am. Jesus knew it would cause a riot and demands for more when he feeds them with this miracle, but he knew this would draw out the contrast. And the crowd that began, after he fed them, the crowds began demanding and shouting, and Jesus withdrew to the mountains, and he sent the twelve, he sent the twelve across the lake. And I think this little episode that we skipped over last week, this was specifically for these 12 to remind them that this was all a part of the plan and they need not fret when all of a sudden they get across the lake and their big, booming, popular movement all of a sudden becomes very small and very unpopular. So this was a very personal moment that Jesus wanted to have with his disciples 
to send a message they would never forget. John 6, verse 15, When Jesus perceived that they, the crowds, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because of a great wind was, blow, was blowing. So when they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus on the sea drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. This was more than just about the storm in the middle of the night. This is about the storm they're about to enter into. This is about the storm that they're about to face for the next you know, 15 chapters or so where all of a sudden Jesus is public enemy number one and eventually he is going to be hung on a cross and he says to them, guys, I know we were popular and I know it was booming and I know we could do no wrong. It's about to get a little bumpy. It's about to get a little stormy. But don't worry. I am going to be with you the whole way. You are my chosen few. You are my followers. We will change the world, but just, but just endure the storm. It's not going to be easy, but I promise you, we'll make it through. It says, when they were will- Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. I don't think it's a coincidence that before, these, before this passage, Jesus had everybody's attention and was everybody's favorite. And after this passage, he becomes the enemy of the very people that he had just fed. So this little you know, pocket of an episode is to get our minds focused on what is Jesus trying to say to these few about what they're about to face. I think this encounter does a couple things. It cements who Jesus was to the twelve. Now, there in verse number 20, Jesus says, it is, it is I. Literally, the Greek there is, is two words, ego and me, which if you would translate that literally, Jesus says to them, I am, right? He says, hey, it's not him saying I am this or I am that. He says, I am, as in y'all have been thinking that I am who you think, thought I was. You have thought I was the Messiah. You think I am God's son. Let me just confirm this to y'all. I am. Y'all don't think, we're not supposed to say that, right? Jews aren't supposed to call God by his name, but I think God can call himself by his name. That's right. I am that I am. I am God in flesh. So just in case you're wondering, guys, I am Yahweh in a body. So he gives them his true identity He showed them because they were legit. They were the core. They were the followers. They weren't just in it for the food. They were willing to traverse stormy seas for him. He lets them in on the real secret. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a Savior. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is God. Including the storm they were about to walk headlong into. These men had been so brave. This reminds them that they needed only to trust in Him. Because even if following God doesn't always prove easy, His presence will prove stronger than the circumstance. And He says to them, guys, I know it's about to get rough, and I know it's been a little bumpy. I promise you this, my presence will be more powerful than your circumstance. So after this, they meet the crowds again. And Jesus knows that what's going to happen. He knows he's going to have to let them down. He's going to have to make it clear to them that he is not who they thought he was. Of course, he was the Messiah. He was God in flesh. He wasn't a food truck, though. He wasn't a vending machine. But don't 
you think, don't you think that this had to be difficult for Jesus? I mean, no one dislikes being popular. Nobody wants to be hated, right? No one hates being followed and loved. I mean, he was God. What would really bother him to snap his fingers and just give the people what they want? I mean, they would always be there to do what he wanted them to do, to worship him and laud him, to fight for him. I mean, you'd think he'd not cut ties with this pretty good thing he had going on. And even though in the short term you'd think it wouldn't hurt things to just keep these people around and give them what they wanted in exchange for getting what he might want, Jesus wasn't here to win a popularity contest. He wasn't here to pamper or pander himself. Jesus stayed true to his mission. His mission to save people from sin. It's trappings, it's deceptions, it's stumbling blocks. And listen clearly. Jesus loved them too much to give them what they wanted without telling them what they needed. And Jesus loves us too much to just give us what we want without telling us what we need. He loves you too much to always say, well, you want that? Well, of course. Because listen, He could give it to you. There's nothing impossible for God. Nothing is stopping Him from giving you exactly what you want except His love. And His love prevents Him from just saying, blank check, blank check, blank check. His love says, you need something more important than what you want. And of course, in the long term, Jesus wasn't at risk of losing anything, but in the moment, Jesus made a decision that could have easily, uh, that couldn't have been easy because of what it would do to his movement. His movement that was driven by reaching the most and to save the most, he was about to break it. Not just break it in half, but break it to where there was not much left. Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic that back in chapter 6, verse number 13, when they had leftover bread, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. And after Jesus preaches this sermon, there's going to be just 12 men that are left over. Because of what he had to say and why he had to say it. So when they come to him and they say, Jesus, hey, could you do another miracle? Could you just give us this bread always? Could you just always guarantee that we never, ever, ever lack anything? At least they don't mince their words. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And, you know, when you've got a big hungry crowd of people that are demanding bread, and all of a sudden some guy says, listen, y'all need me more than y'all need bread. Y'all need what I've got to give you spiritually than what you think you need physically. That doesn't go over well, right? I mean, that's a nice memory verse for us, and we like to say that whenever we're going through a season of difficulty and we're going through a season of want, right? But for Jesus to say this to a crowd of people that were bloodthirsty, right, that were just full of, of lust for what they could get, he says, y'all don't need the stuff, y'all need me. And they're thinking, huh, what else you got, Jesus? We actually want the stuff. We're glad you're around, but only for what you can give us. But Jesus says, no, 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 guys. It's not because I don't want to give it to you. It's because you all have a greater need. And the greater need is given to you by me because I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Guys, I'm trying to address a deeper need and a deeper thirst that you don't realize you have. And the Band-Aid isn't going to fix it. Jesus tells them what they didn't want to hear, but what they needed to hear. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has talked about bread. Remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil, when the devil attempted him to turn stones into bread, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy, 
um, about how we should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, that is a quote from Deuteronomy where Moses is recapping the manna that God gave them in the wilderness. And Jesus is talking to them about the manna because they're thinking, hey, God gave us bread, so why can't you give us bread? It rained every day back in those days. Why can't you rain bread every day for us? And Jesus said, guys, 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 you've missed the point of why God gave you the bread in the first place. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says, or Moses says, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know something very important. Every day you woke up and you found bread that you didn't understand where it came from or how it got there. You found bread outside every single day, enough just for the day to train you, to wire you, to condition you that God is faithful. And lest you depend on yourself, lest you follow your own guts, God is the one who provides. And every time, hand to mouth, you eat what God gives you for this day, this daily bread, you're to remember God is faithful. God is faithful. And Jesus says the reason why God gave you all the bread in the old days is to train you not to trust in what you can hold in your hands or put in your belly, but that you might would know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. So that wasn't just to make sure that your cupboards were full. It was to make sure that your heart was right. To condition you to know that God is faithful and that you need Him more than you need anything or anybody else. Jesus goes on and He says in verse 36 through 40, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. The Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and, that, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven to do, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose none, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus assures them that the mission he is on from the Father, he sets a precedent here that we should follow. Jesus assures them, guys, 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 I've got your eternal interest in mind. And I promise you, what God is going to do for you lasts longer than what anything of this world will, that even when this world passes away and you're buried, right, God's going to raise you back up. But this isn't going to happen if we just cater to what you want right now because you'll miss what you need in the future. Now, Jesus kind of gives us a pretty powerful moral teaching here that is really kind of a sidebar, but I, I want to say it. Jesus was more focused on pleasing his father than pleasing his friends or his followers. And when it comes to God and obeying Him and honoring Him and glorifying Him, always defer to His will over your friends, even those closest to you. Now, God's will isn't going to shut anybody out. God's will isn't going to hurt anybody. Jesus loved His friends and followers enough to tell them what they would be, that they would be more satisfied with a version of Him that's obedient to God than a version of Him that's disobedient to God. He says, guys, if I'm disobedient to God, y'all aren't going to get what God has in store for you. And then would you be happy about that? I don't think so. Anytime anybody pressures you to be disobedient to God because of the short-term gain that may come along with it, you look at them and you say, listen, I know this might make things better right now or make things appear better right now, but you're not going to be happy with a version, that's a version of me that's disobedient to God. You're not. 
If you ever find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do, you don't know what decision to make, if you're stuck between obeying God and pleasing somebody else, listen, no one is going to be blessed with a version of you that rejects God's best. Nobody is going to get anything good out of a version of you that has turned away from God's good. And that doesn't mean it's not going to make things difficult in the moment. It very much might. It probably will in a lot of cases. But do you love somebody enough to look them eyeball to eyeball and say, nobody's going to be blessed by me if I'm not where God wants me? Nobody's going to be blessed by a version of me that rejects God's best for something that's lesser than that. So if you want what's best for your family, your friends, your career, for you, there's never a scenario where disobeying God is the better option. And even if you might think, well, if saying yes to Jesus doesn't get me where I want to go, if it sets me back, how can it possibly be best? I mean, how can some spiritual lesson or moral teaching be better than immediate satisfaction? Maybe you're like what the Jews said in verse 41. The Jews complained about him because he said, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? They say, Jesus, how is it that you, you're just a man? And maybe we still do this even though we believe he's the son of God and he's the resurrection savior. Don't we do this, Jesus? You know, I don't know if that metaphorical spiritual stuff really is going to get me the little help that I need. Right? Have you ever, somebody gave you advice, you just roll your eyes and think, listen, I don't need some spiritual, you know, sermonette. I need some real tangible help, right? That's what we think. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, you're just a guy. You're just a man. We know your parents. What are you going to do for us that, that is better than what we literally need? So many ridicule and reject faith because it seems to deal with the abstract. It seems to deal with the potential, not the literal. But what if the spiritual need that you have is so connected to your literal needs? And your spiritual need is so much more pressing than your flesh and what you may think you need most. Your spiritual need, your spiritual hunger and thirst. What if quenching that would take care of all the other problems? And what if quenching that would give you a perspective that you just aren't going to get? Even if you never ran out of everything that you could want. What if that wouldn't quench the hunger and thirst that you have a need for? You know, Jesus is trying to teach us that he can tune and tether our hearts to the Spirit instead of settling for the flesh. And that's what we need as Christians. And that's what he's offering us. Now, most of you are familiar with this verse from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, where Isaiah is quoted, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those that love him. And we often quote that, and we don't really mean to, to use it this way, but by quoting that and not in the next verse, we're basically saying, well, you know what? I don't really know, you know what God is up to. And yeah, there are spiritual things out there, but there's really no way for me to know what good it's actually doing for me. That's not true. Because the next part of that verse where Paul interprets that Old Testament promise, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So don't just quote that verse and say, well, there's things I'll never understand. No, there's things that you can understand. Because the Spirit of God makes sense out of what our flesh says doesn't make sense. And the Spirit of God says, yes, there's a greater need when the flesh says, I don't think so. And he says in verse number 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things, what? Freely given to us from God. 
So let's not roll our eyes at the promises that are spiritual when they may be the very thing we need more than what our belly says. Right? What if there's a spiritual blessing that we're missing because, of our, because our flesh stubbornly demands something lesser? What if? And I know, I know, there's some of us that will say, well, I just don't, I won't ever get it. Because <laughs> I can't say no. That's just how I am. It's just who I am. I've got to have it or I've got to do that. I'll never change and it's just me. And I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm not condemning you at all. God doesn't condemn you. I'm just asking you a question. Are you okay with letting your flesh stubbornly demand something inferior to what God has for you? Are you okay with letting the flesh ruin what God has in store for you? When you don't have to let it? I'm not saying it's not going to be a battle to get what God wants, but don't you think it's worth it? Jesus continues to dialogue with the Jews. Do not murmur among yourselves. And maybe you were just thinking, you don't know what I'm going through. I'm not trying to call you out for murmuring, but Jesus might be. No one has come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He's like, guys, do you not think that it's a big deal that y'all are standing in front of the one you think can give you anything you want? Do you think this is a coincidence or this is just a happenstance? I mean, shouldn't we think more about the significance of this? It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He says, guys, y'all have access to God himself. Don't miss this. Don't walk away from this. Not that anyone has seen the Father except who is from the Son. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Oh, let me remind you once again, I am the bread of life, by the way. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and guess what happened to them? They died. He says, let me tell you something, guys. You know that guy by the pool of Bethesda? Jim, let's call him Jim. James, James, this is a Jewish name. James, that I healed last week. You know what's going to happen to him when he gets older? He's going to die. And I healed him, and I healed him, and he is a new man right now, but he's not going to live forever. You know that little kid, the nobleman's son, that I raised from the dead? And I know he's a kid, we don't want to talk about this, but he's going to get old, he's going to die. Because this world is not going to last forever. You know that big party we threw at the wedding when everybody had the wine they really wanted? I mean, some of them might have got drunk that night and passed out and never woke up. But I don't know. But if they keep doing like that, they're not going to live that long. Hey, guys, no matter what you get on this side, even if it's everything you could ever ask for, it doesn't get you to eternity. So Jesus isn't trying to say the manna wasn't from God. He's just saying it was a gift, but it wasn't what they actually needed. This is the bread which come down from heaven and that one may eat of it and not die. See what he's doing there? I am the living bread which come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread I shall give his flesh, give as my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So see how Jesus is making this about something that they didn't even consider was the most important thing about our spiritual need our connection to God, our eternity. The Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is, what is, he, what, what is he up to? What is he even talking about? And then Jesus says, well, I'll tell you. Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And this is where all of a sudden people start looking around thinking, 
He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, or true food. My blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And people start thinking, woohoo, this guy has lost his mind. Because if he's talking literal, then he's just crazy. But if he's even talking spiritually, that somehow this man has more for us than the world, this man in a relationship with God through this man has more to offer us than any other avenue or pathway of life, if that's what you're saying, Jesus, that's almost crazier than if you were literally saying, eat and drink your flesh and your blood. As the living Father sent me, I become... And I live because of the Father. He who feeds all me will live because of me. This is the bread which come down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. We're almost done, but literally the words he uses here are chew on my flesh and binge on my blood. Two of the strongest Greek words he could have used. It's not just have a snack, right? Or sip. This is chew and binge. This isn't saying that following God means falling behind in every other category, but it does mean that following God should be enough to make falling behind in any other category seem incidental because what God offers us is that much more satisfying and fulfilling. After this, the disciples say, this is a hard saying. This is the big crowds. Who can understand it? Who can accept it? And Jesus says, does this offend you? Because he knew it did. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who will not accept this. The message isn't that God won't give us what we want because it might kill us. The message is that we should be in tune with what we need. And the moral of the story is that Jesus would rather give you the truth and let you wrestle with it than mislead you, give you what you want, and have to wrestle with you. He's not going to change. He's not going anywhere. He's willing to let you wrestle with it, and he'll, He's going to wait on you. Here's the thing about our flesh. Our flesh is dangerously nearsighted. It's dangerously myopic. We focus on what is right in front of us and we will sell our souls for something temporary in a heartbeat. The Spirit will give us farsightedness. It will give us perspective. He reminds us what is most important. The Spirit cares about the condition of our heart more than any other condition. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says that we should keep or guard our hearts with all vigilance. For that's where our life flows from. No matter what the flesh wants to convince you, no physical condition is secure. There's only security in our hearts. Verse 66, from that time, many, most, all but 12 of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They unfollowed him. They defriended him. They deleted his contact information. They blocked him. Then Jesus said to the twelve, because he knew what they were thinking, do you want to go away? They're sitting there thinking, okay, John and Peter, if you get up first, I'll follow you, but I'm not getting up first. 
And John's over there looking at Peter. Peter, you're the loudmouth. Tell him what you think of him. Tell him, you're, tell him he's crazy. Tell him that he needs to walk back all this stuff because he lost the whole crowd. And now it's just us. And what can we do? But I think just when Peter was about to open his mouth and stick his foot in it, I think he took a little bit of a step back and thought, we can't walk away from Jesus. I mean, I want to, but I can't. Because Lord, to whom shall we go? That Peter knew what so many forget. To walk away from Jesus is to walk towards someone or something else. And there's nobody else that offers anything like what Jesus offers. Even if it might be more immediately satisfying. Eternally, it's dark. To whom shall we go? You hold the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And no one else offers a connection or insight into the deeper, more important matters of life than you, Jesus. We're going to stay on the team. No matter what it costs us or what it brings us. Because what you offer us is greater than a full stomach. It's greater than all the riches of the world. It's a connection to God. And it brings life to the spirit that we long for and need more than what we want. Let me pray for you. Rex, if you come up and just play a verse or two while everybody reflects on what we've just heard Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this awesome time with your word, Lord. We spent two weeks in this text, and it presented us two different perspectives, but really the same message. Is there anything better? Is there any more fulfilling way than following Jesus? Even if it doesn't always make sense, there's something in us that wants something, that needs something greater than what this world offers us. All the riches, all the treasures, all the answers, all the, the popularity and the fame of the world, it doesn't satisfy our deepest need. That, no, that, 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 that knowledge and that connection with you. Lord, all that we would come to a place of feeding off of the flesh, drinking the blood, taking all of Jesus and consuming him, knowing that he alone gives us the word of life, the spirit of life, the power and the connection with God. That when we rise up tomorrow morning, we should fall on our face and say, God, it is your will that I want. It is your way that I want. It is your light that I need. Because otherwise, we are in darkness. Father, may we long for that connection. That, or may we long for that touch at our hearts every day that brings us what we need more than what we want. Lord, may you do a work in our midst tonight. Remind us and help us to focus on you. Because truly you, your flesh and your blood is the source of eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.